You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. This is The Exchange, and here's what's ahead. It's all about inflation, but which kind? Inflation? Reflation? Deflation? We're going to look at the latest data and which inflation is leading the way. Speaking of which, have you seen the lumber collapse? Prices keep dropping and are down 30% now from their highs. Is the rally over for good or not? Plus a new shock, how a fresh COVID outbreak in China could mean big delays and price hikes for your goods. The big theme of the whole show today, what's going on with prices. Let's start with the price of the markets. Leslie Picker is here with that. Hi, Leslie. Hey, Kelly. It's been a bit of a choppy day of trading for the markets. I've seen the word listless use as well. That kind of describes what's going on right now. Major averages trading around a pretty flat line. The Dow had been down as much as 177 points earlier in the day. Now you can see it's down just a mere 13 points at this point in time. Uh, so far, that was up 28 points as well, the S&P. Uh, take a look, though, at shares of Biogen down around 2% today. And one of the worst performing stocks on the NASDAQ 100, the pullback comes after a massive rally that the biotech saw. Uh, it rides more than 45% in just a week, helped by that FDA decision yesterday to approve its Alzheimer's drug. Several analysts have upgraded the stock since that decision, but perhaps the excitement has already played out as we see Biogen down 1.7% today. And finally, switching gears to some of the action in the online apparel market, Stitch Fix soaring today after a smaller than expected quarterly loss alongside a revenue beat in an upbeat forecast that could be helping shares of ThreadUp, which are now up more than 25% from its IPO in March. Poshmark, on the other hand, though, sitting out that rally with shares down more than 1% today, Cal. All right, Leslie, thank you very much, Leslie Picker. Well, lumber was one of the hottest goods on the market this year until recently. Prices soared week after week to new highs, driving up home prices and creating major headaches for builders. But it all seems to be slowing down now. Prices have plunged about 30% from their peak in early May. The timber ETF, aptly named Wood, is down 10% from its highs this year. Materials company Louisiana Pacific down about 18% from its highs. Likewise for Weyerhaeuser, off about 15%. Kyle Little is chief operating officer at wholesaler Sherwood Lumber. He's a former lumber trader, one of our favorite lumber experts to speak with. Kyle, it's a pleasure to have you back. The last time we spoke, prices had started to fall. The drop has gotten more dramatic. What are you learning from this and what does it tell you about where lumber prices are headed from here. Yes, but thank you, Kelly. Thank you. Uh, glad to be here. Uh, look, we're not so far off from the, the level that we talked about uh, about two weeks when we got uh, together. However, uh, we weren't able to hold that uh, previous number, and in all indications are we are going to go lower uh, before the next move, move higher. Uh, demand has slowed from what we would deem as unsustainable frenzied pace. Uh, the backlog at the, the builder side and at the retail side is slowly catching up, albeit very slow. Um, I guess we're really looking for starts and permits next week to really understand what uh, is uh, going to be in the pipeline in the in the near future. I mean, does this have you guys breathing a sigh of relief? Because in some ways the price spike was worrisome. It was creating some shortages, although I know you said you hadn't experienced too much of that yourself. So is it the kind of sigh of relief, okay, normalcy is coming back to the market, this is more sustainable? Or is it the kind that makes you go, well, wait a minute, maybe we shot up too quickly and that pulled the brakes too quickly as well? Well, we have seen a move of over 400%. So this, I believe, was somewhat in in inevitable and a welcome breather to uh, what we've been experiencing for the last six to seven months. Uh, our forecast, however, ha really has not changed. We talked about this the last time I was on. Uh, we're, we're in month number 12 of what we believe to be a 24 to 30 month cycle. 
uh, a cyclical bull wave. Uh, we really believe the, the new three-year mean uh, will be much, much higher, uh, almost two times higher than what we've seen in the previous 20 years. And it's going to be well north of, of what we saw the 2018 high, which was uh, uh, the most recent high that we've seen in over the, over the last 30 years uh, prior to 2021. Well, and we're following lumber with such interest, not just because it's a major input on a major part of the economy and housing, obviously other sorts of construction, but also because it seems to be a good leading indicator for the whole market and in some ways the whole economy. So you mentioned a moment ago that demand appears to be softening a little bit more than you had anticipated. Can you explain why and where that's coming from? Well, I think it really goes back that we had such a huge backlog between permits and, and, and the starts that were out there. So builders ha had built the, probably the largest order file that we've ever seen in the, in the last 10 to 15 years. And uh, that has had to take time to work itself through the system. Now the next level of, of jobs that are soon to be started, you know, the futures curve is showing us that prices are going to be a discount at some point in the future. And, you know, these builders and our customers are very savvy. Uh, they're instructing their customers to kind of, if, if it doesn't need to be done today, uh, it might be a better time to take a, take a breather and start this project later in the fourth quarter, possibly in, the, in Q1 of 2022. So final question, Kyle, you know, if I were speaking to you over family dinner or something like that, would you, this is going to be a theme for the rest of the show, would you be saying to me, look, we're in a really tough inflationary environment where all prices are going up that we're seeing in supplies and labor, and, you know, or would you be saying, you know, that we're off the boil a little bit and moderating and things are, are getting better on that front? What's your feel overall in terms of the entire business and all of the different inputs? Yeah, so it, it, I can really only speak to lumber, Kelly, but thank you for that question. But I would say, respective to lumber, we're off the peak prices, the frenzy pace that we want, that we want fall. However, be prepared for uh, prices to be much, much higher than what we've seen uh, for a long period of time. And the jobs uh, that you have coming up uh, don't expect us to go back to what we saw uh, the previous t 10 years. Mm -hmm. That being said, if you can wait, uh, there's no reason not to. Uh, we do see uh, some relief you know, over the next uh, six to 12 months, still, albeit at uh, prices that are much, much higher than what we've experienced in the recent past. Absolutely. Kyle, thank you very, very much. We'll touch base again soon. Kyle Little on Lumber, we appreciate it. While lumber prices are falling, the cost of nearly everything else seems to be on the rise. The Fed says it's keeping an eye on inflation, but Deutsche Bank warns as it also focuses on achieving its social goals, the Fed's inaction could become a big problem. Deutsche writing it may take a year longer until 2023, but inflation will reemerge. And while it's admirable this patience is due to the Fed's priorities shifting to social goals, neglecting inf inflation leaves global economies sitting in their words, on a time bomb. Joining me to discuss this is Barry Knapp. He's the director of research at Ironside Macroeconomics. Barry, it's good to have you, and, and I'm glad we're able to sort of start with this case study in lumber. Um, are you kind of on the Deutsche Bank side of things here that this is a, a ticking time bomb? Well, I think it's going to take a little longer to explode than Deutsche's, um, or at least the quote you read me, implies. So <clears throat> I recently wrote a, a long-term sort of thought piece about what happened in the 60s when we had similarly expansive fiscal and monetary policy. Through that process, we lost interest in being the world's gold slash dollar reserve currency. And so when you move through a disinflationary regime, which had lasted for quite a long time at that point and has as well this go around three decades, you initially move into a re reflationary environment and it takes some time for inflationary expectations to become totally embedded, 
uh, into the public psyche and the business sector psyche such that it really starts to impair things like capital investment and all. So I, I do think that inflation is headed significantly higher, but I also think from the corporate uh, perspective or investor perspective, so you've got your marginal cost versus marginal revenue argument that everyone's focused on here, prices paid versus prices received. But you also have your fixed costs that don't need to be replaced all that often. And when your revenues go up, whether they're nominal or real revenues, you do get operating leverage relative to those fixed costs. Yeah. So in the yeah. early 60s, earnings growth accelerated. And even though the market was expensive, returns were good because you know you had faster earnings growth. And, and that, I think that's the reflationary part of the stage that or stage that we're, we're on the verge of. It looks exactly like Bob Pisani was showing earlier when the second quarter estimates, again, part of that's the, the year-on-year comp, but they're up 60%. And even as we move throughout the rest of the year, people keep raising their EPS targets. And next year, they're raising their EPS right. targets. That's powering the market forward right now. But I want to go back to what you said. When we show the Deutsche quote, they're worried about inflation becoming a, a ticking time bomb in 2023. So already two years from now. And you're saying <laughs> you're, you're looking at it actually happening even later than that. So what is going to happen between now and then that we can go from $70 oil and however much it fills, costs to fill up your gas tank now to the inflationary situation more broadly that everybody's going to be worried about, which sounds like it's not going to happen still for several years' time. Uh, uh, yes, I do think it'll take some time for the process to unfold, but <clears throat> make no mistake, I am in the reflation camp. Um, you know, for me, the only thing transitory about the current inflation environment is service sector disinflation, right? So housing, shelter is being depressed by rent moratoriums. You see medical care costs being depressed Sure, used car prices are not going to rise as fast as they are. Lumber prices will come down. There is some transitory elements to the current aggregates for sure. But the real story over the last three decades was us importing deflation from China as we had this giant global labor supply shock, this increase of more than 120% over 20 years. That piece is going away. We're not going to import disinflation and, you know, you and I talked about this last time I was on. You asked me, would consumers pay higher prices? They've been paying higher prices for services, which have been growing better than 3% for decades. So yeah. we're going to get higher goods prices. That's going to be good news for all the reflationary sectors, the industrial sector uh, and um, materials and energy. But we're just so we're not going to go back to, you know, one and a half percent core PCED. I'm only arguing we're not going to get to 5% like sure. we did in 1967 when things got out of control for some time. So then it's also fair to say that while Deutsch is worried the Fed is going to be behind the ball, you would be in the camp that says, no, if they lean against this, they would be acting too soon, quickly. Well, I, I, I'm in the camp that they're behind the ball largely because of your previous interview and what's happened with lumber costs, what's happened with construction sector wages, what's happened with house prices. Having 13% HPI at this point you know, is is way too fast. And we have this huge demographic of millennials forming households. Yeah. The Fed should not yeah. be buying 100% of the net supply of mortgage-backed securities. They just shouldn't be buying any at this point. All so, right. Well, that puts they, a point on it. And listen, I when we talked to a home builder analyst who said prices are going to go up 20 or 30% from here, which would just be crazy to think about. Uh, but Barry, we'll pick that up next time. Thank you for joining me today. It's good to see you again. Awesome. Thanks, Cal. Barry Knapp of Ironsides. Coming up, Beijing is battling a new COVID variant that's posing problems at the ports with delays of up to three weeks. 
We're going to dig into this backlog, tell you what it could mean for your wallet, as Barry was just discussing. Plus, shares of AMC are outperforming GameStop 5-1 to one over the past month. We'll show you how the executives behind each company have taken different paths as they handle their newfound popularity with investors. We're back in a moment. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. China's largest province is battling the highly transmissible Delta COVID variant. It's leading to lockdowns, travel restrictions, and problems at the ports that are rippling across the entire global economy. Our own Eunice Yoon is live in Beijing with the latest details for us. Eunice? Thanks so much, Kelly. Well, the outbreak is in the trading hub of Guangzhou, near a port that handles one quarter of the Chinese goods that ship to the United States. And the health authorities in the area have been describing the transmissibility of this new variant as alarming. Why? Because health officials say that the early cases can be traced back to a restaurant where the patients were in not in direct contact and were sitting quite far apart from each other, much further than with the original strain from Wuhan, so several meters. Also, uh, several of the cases are asymptomatic, which is raising alarm bells that it could be really really difficult for the authorities to track any of these cases uh, with the thermal imaging scanners um, that have been popping up all over the country. In fact, most people are saying it's nearly impossible. Uh, Another and maybe the most worrisome um, uh, um, development for authorities here is that it looks as though several of the cases um, had already been inoculated by the Chinese vaccines. And so that suggests that these homegrown jabs might not be effective enough against this new strain. Now, the authorities were very quick to point out that uh, these illnesses so far have not turned deadly, uh, but at the same time, they have been uh, causing all sorts of disruptions because, as you can imagine, the authorities here have been taking very aggressive steps, some of the most aggressive that we've seen since the Wuhan outbreak. Um, And uh, what they've been doing is testing 18 million people in Guangzhou in three days. They are clamping down on residential communities there, sending in thousands of medical workers, and now imposing travel restrictions on nearby cities. So those types of tighter protocols are now having um, a very negative effect, as you could imagine, on the operations of that huge port that I mentioned, um, Yantian. It handles a lot of goods that ship to the United States, and uh, um, the shippers there say that most people should be expecting that we're going to see three-week delays just because of this COVID outbreak. And as you know, the shipping industry has been already uh, facing a logjam in their industry. And Eunice, this Delta COVID variant is the same, I think, as the Indian one uh, that's been out there and uh, sort of infecting people and also uh, breaking through some of the vaccinations. And here in the U.S., maybe not quite to the same degree, maybe not yet. Um, But I do wonder if if we need to watch what happens in that and where you're uh, referring to in terms of a blueprint for what could happen again as that potentially spreads. I know a little bit in the U.K. already, obviously, and and back here in the U.S., especially in those parts of the country that aren't that vaccinated. Yeah, well, I think that's was was really interesting because, you know, from I'm in Beijing, we're like a thousand miles away from Guangzhou. But even here, uh, you know, the vaccination centers that we were visiting, they were saying a lot of people just in the past two two weeks or so, uh, once we heard that this variant 
um, which, as you had mentioned, is originally originated from from India, highly transmissible. Uh, once it popped up that that was that this is the one that that Guangzhou is battling with. A lot of people were were visiting now these vaccination centers. Uh, people are saying, well, you know, originally I was really not thinking I was going to get a vaccine. Um, for the most part, the pandemic has been controlled here, or I'm going to wait for another vaccine that might be available to me later. Um, and now people are kind of jumping at the chance to be able to get vaccinated because they just want any sort of protection, given how uh, concerning, um, how concerned the authorities are about um, how quickly people can get sick yeah. uh, from this particular variant. It's a great point, and maybe it'll be an impetus here as well to close some of those gaps that we do see. Uh, Eunice, thank you again with the heads up to the supply disruptions we might experience as a result of that, our Eunice Yun in Beijing. And with this new variant wreaking havoc on the supply chain, which industries in particular are facing the worst delays and price hikes, and what could it all mean for consumers? Joining me now is Nathan Resnick. He's CEO of Sourceify, which connects companies with factories around the world. Nathan, it's good to have you back. Is this impact already being felt in the U.S.? It is, you know, we're starting to see a trickle down effect and really there's coming ripple effects. I mean, especially with the holiday season up and coming, a lot of major importers are really trying to plan their supply chain for Q3 and Q4. And so this is gonna have big effects on their supply chain. So what industries in particular do you think? Right now out of Guangzhou and Guangdong, the main area where this port is affected, it's mostly home goods, shoes, consumer electronics, and many other types of products. Home goods, shoes, consumer electronics. Do you think that people are going to notice this in particular because we're already dealing with an economy plagued by price hikes and shortages? Although I guess not necessarily in some of those categories. Yeah, you know, what's been crazy about this is just the freight rates from last year have spiked significantly. I mean, the cost of a 40-foot container compared to last year is up over 150% to the West Coast and even more to the East Coast. And so these port delays are going to cause more increased in freight rates. And that's something we're seeing, you know, continuous throughout the year. What happens if this goes on? And, you know, I think as everyone's mentioned, it's been a couple of weeks at this point. Could it stretch on and on? You know, I think it could. I've talked to our team in Guangzhou last night and they're saying that we really have to be aware of these current port delays. And, you know, it's going to be a trickle down effect, not only to American companies that are importing products from China, but also a lot of that cost may be passed down to consumers where there may be, you know, higher prices this holiday season. So finally, when we talk about freight rates, which have been up, as you mentioned, and now here's yet another headache, how much are we talking and what's that likely to translate into? So if I'm buying a consumer good, you know, maybe uh, something for the home, maybe an electronic, you know, what percentage of the ticker price is at is, is exposed here? You know, it's a really good question. And when we look at a container price, I mean, the cost to ship a 40 foot container last year was, you know, about twenty five hundred dollars. Right now it's up to over five thousand dollars in a lot of areas. It's over fifty five hundred dollars for a 40 foot container. And so it really depends on the type of product that these businesses are importing. But it can be anywhere from, you know, a five to 20 percent price increase in the holiday season, just depending on how these American businesses incur this increased freight rate. And do they have any alternative? <laughs> The alternative is to try to find a manufacturer in a different location, whether that be in another province in China that, you know, isn't affected by this COVID variant or outside of China. You know, we saw last year a lot of uh, American importers and businesses shifting their supply chains outside of China, you know, due to, uh, of course, the import uh, risks in terms of COVID, as well as just trying to, you know, avoid the increase in tariffs. Right. <laughs> Tariffs feels like a, another era ago, uh, but that's all adding up to, to reasons for people to look for alternatives and for us to all keep in mind here in the weeks ahead if this problem gets worse. Nathan, thanks very much for joining us.
Thank you. Nathan Resnick of Sourceify. Coming up, Tesla's China delivery. Speaking of China, Tesla had a good May. After a disappointing April, the stock's down 1%. Are the numbers good enough to get this stock back to green year-to-date? It's still down 15%, and we will ask. Plus, more inflation talk. We're going to speak with John Katsimatidis, the CEO of Red Apple Group, about what higher food and fuel prices mean for retailers and for customers. We're back in a moment. Welcome back to The Exchange. It's a consolidation day here for the broader market. Slight decline for the Dow. The S&P is positive. The Nasdaq is up about two-tenths of a percent, but it's well off the highs of the session. Here are some of the movers we're watching, including Clover Health today on pace for its best day ever after becoming today's most mentioned name on Reddit's Wall Street Bets forum. Clover's up 71 percent right now. It was halted midday when it had already traded more than 400 million shares. That's 18 times its typical average volume. And there's plenty of short interest in the company, backed by Chamath Palihapitiya, 43 and a half percent of its shares are sold short. Uh, that's according to S3 Partners. Again, Clover shares up 70 percent today. Restaurant stocks are also on the move with Brinker up 5 percent after BMO hiked its price target to 83, calling it a compelling opportunity. It's interesting, by the way, to see Reddit move the stocks more than the sell side. Anyway, sell side positive on Brinker. It's up nearly 6 percent. Cheesecake up 7 percent. Strong gains for the rest of the restaurant space here as well today. And Delta is the top performer in the airlines after getting an upgrade to uh, buy from Jefferies. The analyst there sees it climbing 30 percent on international and business travel rebound. Delta shares up 2 percent. They're 47 and change. For more on this call, you can head over to CNBC.com slash pro. Now we head over to Tyler Matheson for our news update. Hi, Ty. Hi, Kelly. A lot of green to talk about there in stocks today. Let's tell you what's happening at this hour. The head of the IRS telling senators he needs clear authority from Congress to collect info on large cryptocurrency transfers. He says cryptocurrency transactions over $10,000 go largely unreported. A man known as the Butcher of Bosnia will spend the rest of his life in prison. Ratko Mladic losing his final appeal before a U.N. court today. He was found guilty of genocide as former Bosnian Serb military chief during Bosnia's war during the early and mid-1990s. And trials are expanding of Pfizer and BioNTech's COVID vaccine for kids under 12. Up to 4,500 children will be enrolled at sites across the U.S., Finland, Poland, Spain, Pfizer says it will test dosages far below those used for adults. And tonight on the news with Shep Smith, how expanding shots to younger kids will help build herd immunity and how soon that might happen. Kelly, I'll see you in about 33 minutes. Looking forward, Tyler. Thank you very much. April showers bring May flowers for Tesla. Retail traders buy and insiders sell out of AMC. And a boundary bracelet. It's all coming up in rapid fire right after this. Welcome back, everybody. Let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar right now. It's time for Rapid Fire. And here to break down our headlines are Steve Grasso, the Director of Institutional Sales at Stuart Frankel, and a CNBC Fast Money maskless trader, Sarah Fisher, media reporter for Axios and CNBC.com tech reporter, Steve Kovac. Great to have you guys all here. And we're going to start with Tesla. A lot of news here, some good and some bad for Tesla. Let's start with the positive. After an April slump in Chinese deliveries, Tesla delivered over 33,000 locally made vehicles in May, a 29% improvement. That's according to China's Passenger Car Association. Now, the shares were up as much as 3% today, but the bad news is Tesla veteran and trucking chief Jerome Guillen has left the company just three months after taking over that role. The stock slipping into the red is that headline. Steve Grasso has overshadowed Tesla's China sales. Uh, What do you think investors are most concerned about here with his departure? 
Well, first of all, take a step back. Tesla has has been riddled with uh, executives leaving. This is actually a very quick uh, departure. So I think this is something that investors should be concerned with. But if you look at Tesla's stock, Kelly, and you look at the 10-year yield, and you look at growth versus value, Tesla's growth, right? So let's just look at the yield. Let's look at the inverse correlation to yield for the last uh, couple of months or so. If yields are, if rates are staying right where they are or, or moving lower, Tesla stock is going to move higher if, uh, if, and if past performance is uh, anywhere near indicative of future potential. So I would wait on Tesla. But if you look at the moving average, the 200-day moving average is 606. If you want to wait, you can be patient. Wait till it closes above that level. Okay. But if rates are going to stay where they are, Tesla is a buy right now. Forget about the departure. Forget about any other noise. Still, it's a big if. I mean, rates sunk today after I think some of the trade deficit figures and elsewhere. Tesla still can't get a bid. And we're at like 1.5% on the 10-year. Most people would say we can only go higher from here. But I, I love the kind of framework because obviously it's an important, often overlooked one. So putting that aside, Steve Kovac, let's talk about, again, kind of the company's fundamentals for a moment. What would Elon Musk say about these numbers? And, and it, it's been strange to watch the reporting out of China. The information had the story about their you know, numbers falling by 50 percent. Now their local authorities are reporting a rebound. Yeah, and it's, it's the same thing he's been saying, right, about China, which is well, and also when these accidents that China has been investigating, too, and all these protests that we've been seeing, you know, he's been making these claims about full self-driving and that there's so much ambiguity there that people think, like, maybe I can actually drive into this car that's causing these accidents, like the one we saw in Texas a few weeks ago. Um, he would say, like, you know, this is this is normal. This is expected. And he, he blamed the supply chain issues like he's already been blaming for the delay of the Plaid Plus Model S that was supposed to come out this month. And on top of that, the trucking thing, the departure of this executive really signaled to me that that truck is not going where they thought it would. They originally announced it five or six years ago. Here we are. Now they're saying it's not going to come until 2022 or hmm, later. Okay. So if this guy came in and, and said, hey, it's not working, and that's a really bad signal for the truck. So, Steve Grasso, why does the 10-year become more important than you know, the departure of, of such a key leader and the delay in a key product line? Because we've seen this before as far as departures and delays, and every time you start to gauge Tesla stock as a car company, that's the wrong way to do it. It's a technology company. It's a growth company. It's a where-the-puck-is-going company. So if you look at why Tesla stock took that major hit in the last couple of months, it was because the 10-year yield was rising in an uncontrollable fashion. Then it hit a wall at one spot seven four. And now Tesla is sort of, uh, I don't want to say you, you, you need to tap the brakes because you don't right now. If the yield winds up going lower and, and the, uh, the, the support in yield, Kelly, is, is around one spot five four, we broke that today. That means that growth stocks like a Tesla are going to give a little more freedom to run hmm. higher, not, not sideways, not lower. It's so interesting. It's so, so much to unpackage there. Uh, it's a great, great point. All right, let's move along and talk about the meme stock mania a little bit. It's proving to be a golden ticket for AMC insiders. With the recent activity propelling AMC to sky-high valuations, insider selling has also ramped up. A total of seven insiders have sold a portion of their stakes since May 28th, according to Insider Score. The stock price has more than doubled since then. For those who are wondering, CEO Adam Aaron, Sarah, has never sold his AMC shares. 
Oh, sorry, Sarah, go, go ahead. I'm just curious. <laughs> sorry, you... There. you know, it is notable that Adam Aaron has never sold his shares. What's also notable, Kelly, is the fact that nobody sold their shares last year. So this is new for insiders at AMC. I actually think they've been pretty good about taking advantage of this situation, raising some capital to pay down debt. But the thing I will say to you that I've been saying all along is that the reason these people are selling their shares is because they don't expect this ride to last forever. And that's because the fundamentals of the business just aren't there. The meme stocks are great until they're not great anymore. And if GameStop tells us anything, this ride is not going to go on long enough for everyone to hold on for the long term. It's interesting, Sarah, what we would make of the executives selling their shares. On the one hand, any company who sees its share price do what AMC does, you'd almost be crazy not to sell. The CEO may be a little bit different story, um, but it does still give you information if they're saying, okay, you know, we're glad that the public is really excited about these opportunities, but we're, we're looking at this as a, you know, as an, as an opportunity, let's say, uh, to lock in some gains. Yeah, of course. It tells you that they don't have the confidence long term that this stock is going to continue to go up again because the fundamentals aren't there. Adam Aaron is in a tricky position because over the past week, he's been communicating directly to his new stakeholders, which are these retail investors. So if he wants to sell shares, that sort of goes against the message he's been saying all week long, which is continue to buy. We'll give you some free popcorn. It's a great investment. So he himself is in a little bit of a tricky situation. But for people who are not necessarily spokespeople for this company, they're making money, Kelly. What's the implication, Steve Grasso, that this is his new uh, sort of shareholder base? Is that better or worse for AMC in the long run? Mm, that's an interesting question. But the, the problem is retail investors don't uh, need to necessarily, this type of retail investor doesn't need to be in there for the long haul. They don't need to be told that it's a long-term investment. Uh, is, it, is it good or bad? Well, the stock is up, uh, you know, 2,476%. So it's actually good that they were able to raise money and maybe pivot on strategy. And it would be irresponsible not to sell the stock if you're an insider, wouldn't it? I mean, I, I have to agree with you, really. I do. I cannot blame them too much. It's such an extraordinary time uh, for them to be living through. All right, let's move along. Uh, during its Worldwide Developers Conference, Apple just introduced a bunch of new features engineered to let iPhone users communicate and share information across platforms seamlessly. It's almost as though Apple is laying the groundwork to turn its iOS 15 into a social network, and that could up the ante in the decade-long spat it's had with Facebook. Mr. Kovac, you say Apple's walled garden is no longer so walled, and it could drive uh, Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg crazy. Oh, not just crazy. He is angry today, and that is because these new features coming to the iPhone have a lot of these social features built in that things you would normally do on Facebook and Instagram, um, improve video chat features like sharing your screen or, or co-watching a streaming movie on Disney Plus. Um, the ability finally, when I, when I talk about walled gardens breaking down, the ability finally to FaceTime someone on an Android or Windows device, that is a huge and significant move and very uncharacteristic of Apple. And basically, Apple is giving you less and less of a reason to go to Facebook for these social features. They're saying, we're more private. You don't have to worry about getting ads shoved at you or, or us tracking everywhere you go. You can do all the photo sharing and video chatting and, and text chatting that you want to do 
just privately on your phone. It's all right there built into iOS 15. And that is the kind of stuff that drives Zuckerberg crazy. He's already called iMessage uh, a huge competitor to Facebook's products, especially as the company is still going through this so-called pivot to privacy where they see kind of a closed version of the internet where you have private communication and then the open version that we're already used to. Yeah, and Sarah, I often think of Facebook Messenger as kind of the texting for people whose phone numbers I don't have. You know, if I have your number, I'm texting you. You know, I'm messaging you, whatever, I'm messaging you. If I don't, then Facebook Messenger is great for that. They, they have kind of two separate utilities. Uh, what else would you add, Sarah, to, uh, on this discussion about whether these changes Apple's making kind of hit directly at Facebook's business? Well, take a look at how Facebook has migrated its business over the past few years. There are more people who use messaging apps globally, Kelly, than there are that use social media apps. Facebook has not only leaned into it, it's doubled down on it. It's combined the messaging apps between Instagram, Messenger, and WhatsApp so that businesses can seamlessly communicate across them. Facebook has signaled that messaging is a huge part of its future. So this is a massive dig at it. The last thing I'll say here is there's a huge war between Apple and Facebook that's been brewing. This just adds fuel to the fire. Steve mentioned privacy, but it's also hardware. Facebook debuted the portal last year, two years ago. So this is another thing that's going to continue to eat at both companies as they go head to head, not just in those hardware services I mentioned, but in software services as well. Steve Grasso, are all these reasons to dump Facebook stock? Uh, well, Facebook always shows you that there's a reason to hold Facebook stock, but I am a, I'm not a holder of Facebook currently. I'm a holder of, of Apple stock. And if you look at that services arm, uh, Kelly, they're moving more and more in that direction. It's over $53 billion in revenues from services currently. This is another reason to be a buyer of Apple stock. Apple is both value and growth. Apple is grossly undervalued here, and I would say I remain a buyer, and I would encourage people to do the same. You're in a bullish mood today, Steve. You like you know, Apple, you like Tesla. You, you just get well, up I'm on the right long, side I'm of the bed. I'm not long Tesla. I'm not long uh, Tesla, and, I, and I'm you know I, I like value, but I think we're in that sweet spot where value and growth can work, and Apple checks both of those boxes literally. They're never an innovator. They're a perfecter. Hmm. So for me, Apple stock, unless I start seeing my kids will ask for a different phone uh, on the hardware side and the services side still growing, it's grossly undervalued. Apple should be a $200 right. stock and it's trading in the 20s. All in right, the 20s. Carl Icahn, fair enough. All right, thank you guys. Before we go, though, <laughs> want to mention a game of red light, green light, but for personal space, the new pandemic era accessories, apparently a bracelet, a lanyard, a sticker, whatever it is, but it is color-coded to define your comfort level, your boundaries for personal interactions. This is the journal's A-Head today. I absolutely love it. These color-coded bands signal your preference for social distancing and close contact. So obviously red means stay away. Green means go all in, whatever that means, Sarah. And yellow is for people who are on the fence. Uh, is there a, like an opt-out <laughs> altogether? You just don't wear a bracelet? Who would, no, if I accidentally no. wore a color-coded bracelet without knowing, am I sending signals out there into the universe? I would never wear a bracelet like that. We are not robots. We are people. Read facial expressions and cues. That's creepy to me. <laughs> Steve Grasso. <laughs> well, if you wear a mask, I think it means people stay away. And if you don't show up at work, that's your opt out. So I don't think we really need a lot of these things. But if you want an interactive one, Kelly, you know what I'm going to say, right? No. Apple Watch. Oh. Wear the Apple Watch. I'm sure they can come up with some type of color-coded screen to let you know I, I am not available for conversation. Steve Kovac, where should we expect to see these bracelets? In the workplace or is it more like in a social setting? I, I just can't imagine. 
I feel like it's more for the workplace, right? Like, I haven't seen you, Kelly, in about a year and a half. I, I don't know. Should I hug you when I'm back in the studio with you? Should I shake your hand? Should I just awkwardly step back and wave? I'm not sure. Um, I think the workplace is more, when you see family and friends, of course you're going to hug them. That's that's a given. Now it's going to have to be a big bear hug right in front of the whole studio uh, once you get back in here. <laughs> Let's do it. We'll leave it there. Everybody thanks Steve Kovacs, Sarah Fisher, and Steve Grasso in Rapid Fire today. Still ahead, a loyal retail trader following might be the one thing AMC's Adam Aaron and GameStop's Ryan Cohen have in common. But the way that they approach these shareholder bases is night and day. It's playing out in the stock, and we have that story ahead. And don't forget, you can watch us live anytime using the CNBC app. We're back in a minute. Welcome back. AMC and GameStop have both garnered loyal retail trader followings, but the way each company's leaders have addressed this phenomenon couldn't be more different. Kate Rooney is here. You know, I, I can't resist making a little bit of a red and green <laughs> crack after that last discussion, Kate. Everything has implications now. Anyway, you're on a much more serious note to look at the difference in approach between Adam Aaron and Ryan Cohen. That's right. Different strokes here, Kelly. These two have taken very different approaches in the way that they harness the retail trader. Let's start with Adam Aaron. He took over as AMC CEO five years ago. And analysts really describe his tactics as what you'd expect from a more old school hospitality executive, putting the customer, and in this case, the investor, first. Aaron was the CEO of Starwood Resorts, Norwegian Cruise Lines, and Vail Resorts at one point. He's really been reaching out directly to this group of Reddit traders on Twitter. He's been doing YouTube interviews, and the movie theater chain launched its own portal on AMC's website directly for shareholders. They've got perks like early screenings, free popcorn, and he's reminded investors a couple times in recent tweets that they own the company and he works for them. Now over to Ryan Cohen. For one, he's about 30 years younger than Aaron. Cohen is the former uh, founder of Chewy. He's also the chairman right now of GameStop Board, so not the CEO. And although he owns about 12% of that company, what he says really goes at GameStop. He has been the face of this company lately. And Cohen is not as explicit in this outreach to the Reddit crowd. One analyst described it as the Elon Musk approach. Cohen's tweets can be sort of cryptic if you remember this one, the ice cream cone and GameStop's uh, big tech turnaround strategy has been equally opaque. We've gotten almost no details on that. Another big difference, GameStop hasn't taken advantage of this recent retail rally to raise money. AMC, meanwhile, a lot more opportunistic and continues to sell equity to pay down debt. Kelly. I think that's a good point that you make because while the jury's still out on exactly what happens with the stock price of both of these companies, at least AMC is saying, fine, well, you're going to give us the capital. We'll go out and raise it. We'll try to shore up our balance sheet. Why is GameStop being more conservative? It's so interesting. Every analyst I talk to is confounded. They don't know. They say, you know, this would be a great thing. They could raise money to really do this turnaround strategy, potentially M&A, maybe buy a tech company to actually implement this tech strategy. People are scratching their heads and they say that, you know, that also adds to some of the mystery around Ryan Cohen. Why hasn't he done this? It could be that they're waiting for a new CEO. The current CEO is on the way out. Ryan Cohen really has been a leader here, but it's unclear. It seems like a win-win. AMC has done this and gotten a lot of praise and the right. shareholders are happy. He's happy. And like you guys mentioned in the last segment, you know, there are insiders that are selling, seeing this as an opportunity. The CEO, meanwhile, Diamond hands, if you want to use that <laughs> reference, he is not selling, which retail traders love. Yes, absolutely. But you do wonder if GameStop could look back at a missed opportunity here if they don't do something quickly, maybe like you said, with new leadership. Kate, thank you. Thanks, Kate Lynn. Rooney. Still ahead, global food prices hitting their highest levels in almost a decade. We'll talk to Gristiti CEO John Katsimatidis about that and what it means for his businesses and for consumers right after this break. 
Welcome back. A key inflation gauge is sounding alarm bells, and it could have a big impact in grocery stores especially. The latest U.N. Global Price Index shows food costs reached their highest level in nearly a decade last month, thanks in part to supply and logistics issues. My next guest is feeling the pinch of inflation across nearly his entire portfolio, which includes energy companies and the Gristini supermarket chain in New York City. Let's welcome in John Katsimatidis. He is chair and CEO of the Red Apple Group. And it's great to have you here because... Your position to experience this really from the front lines, uh, how much longer do you think this goes on? Uh, Kelly, it's going to go on. Uh, I predicted uh, $70 crude oil uh, about three, four months ago in September. Mm -hmm. I was wrong. It came now. Uh, And uh, uh, gasoline prices are continuing to go up. Uh, Labor prices are going up. Uh, What does that mean? That means food prices are going up because everything is being delivered to the warehouses and stores by truck, energy, labor, etc., all going up. Companies are not dumb; they have to raise the prices in order to keep track with uh, uh, so-called inflation. I predicted that uh, coming uh, September, October, you'll have an annualized uh, inflation rate of about five to six percent. Sure. I, uh, you know, I argue sometimes with some of my. Uh, economist friends like Cudlow and uh, and Steve Moore, but uh, that's going to be the number. So, I, listen, I think a lot of people would say, yeah, that sounds about right, but the question is how long, you know, and can it keep going up? So let's flip the calendar into 20, what is next year, 2022 already? What does it look like then? You know, do we start having prices come down? Can people keep, you, you know the consumer well, can they show up in Gristini's and go, oh, sure, I'll pay 25% more? Are they going to go, no, forget it, I, I can't, you know, is it actually going to hurt the economy? Well, I, I don't think it's going to hurt the economy because uh, I'm looking at wages going up. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at minimum wages going up. So it's it's an overall, you know, when the boat, what, what does it say? When the sea rises, everything goes up. Mm-hmm. And I, I just see inflation going up. And I, I also see uh, interest rates. They're not going to stay at this rate. I think you can see higher interest rates by uh, the end of the year. Uh, so it, it just... Uh, it's concerning. It's concerning. But uh, a lot of people don't realize it yet, but it's happening. It's, it, it's going to happen. It will happen. And uh, everybody has to be aware of it. I guess my question is this, and, and I know I'm asking kind of for some deeper insight, but I, because you are just so in, in touch with, with the consumer, what is this going to do uh, to sort of the the living status or quality of, of Americans, broadly speaking? So when you tell me that fuel, fuel prices and food prices are going up, Sounds bad. Okay, I get that wages are going up, but which which one's going to go up more, and and for how long? I, I don't get the sense people are thrilled about higher prices. Obviously, we know the labor market is in really good shape, and it's really hard to find people right now. But is this all? How is this all going to shake out? Oh, at some place it's going to level out. But the other form of secret inflation is shrinkflation. Have you heard about shrinkflation? In other words, if you were buying uh, towels. And there was 64 uh, towels to the, uh, the, the the roll. Now there might be 52. So people just buy it and don't realize they're getting less. Uh, if you're buying, I, I remember when uh, coffee was 16 ounces. Now it's 12 ounces. Uh, I remember when when uh, Tropicana maybe was 64 ounces. Now maybe 54 ounces, and so on and so on. So there's shrinkflation. And there's inflation, uh, the rising prices, and the reduction of 
product delivered to the consumer. Yeah, no, it's uh, you've kind of brought us back to the theme of the show today, the flation theme. It's shrinkflation. We all know it. We see it in kind of soda bottles and, and all the rest of it. So my final question is, what would you say to policymakers? I mean, are we trying to solve this problem? Is this all a good, healthy thing we're just going to move through? Do we need to do something now from the Fed? I just think it goes back to Washington uh, and the fact that, don't forget, America has 100 years worth of oil. Why are we pushing uh, the American public towards electric cars where 90% of the batteries for electric cars are made in China? So it's it's making smart moves. Why did we uh, cancel the Keystone Pipeline? America has 100 years worth of oil. All the oil would go down the Keystone Pipeline from Canada and America yeah. down to the Gulf Coast, produced by uh, American workers made into gasoline and yeah. distributed in South America, Caribbean. Now we shut that down. And what happens? We, we turn yeah. on uh, Russia and Germany. And so in terms of America, the gas pipeline, yep, the Nord Sea. And, and I, I, hate to, I hate to cut you off, but we're up against a hard commercial break, and we hope you come back and join us soon. We'll see where we are in a couple months' time. Well, Kelly, thank you very much for having me. Thank you for being here, John Katz and Matitas. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.